Oh, I just remember something. We're going to have to cut this and put it into the proper place. Mm-hmm. But I remember my hot take about imperialism. Mm-hmm. But the people, when tankies say tankies, will criticize the U.S. when a topic of Chinese imperialism is up. And then everyone just shuts it down. You know, those people that like sustain the U.S. propaganda argument. Oh, well, it's it's not as bad as the U.S., you know, still freedom of speech or whatever. Like, I feel like those people, they're the all lives matter of the anti-imperialist. Like, damn, (laughs) (laughs) you're not wrong. That's pretty good. Yeah, that's how I feel, you know. Like when we speak about Black Lives Matter and then you hear, oh, no, all lives matter. That's how I feel when I start talking shit about the U.S. and people go, well, all these other countries. And it's like, oh, well, China's imperialist, too. It's like, no, like I said earlier in the podcast, U.S. has 800 international like military bases. Every other country has 80. Like, do we really want to fucking compare and act like there are false equivalents here? No, we're, you're, you're, missing, you're missing the point, man. We're going to find the mayor of Antifa camped out in Afghanistan in a cave on dialysis 20 years from now, and we're going to kill him and bury him at sea because we absolutely definitely did kill him, and there's no question <laughs> yes. about that because we really yes. respect them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Dude, I'm not going to lie. In my liberal years, like this fucking video of uh, what is the fucking baseball game that was happening the night that Osama bin Laden was assassinated? Oh my god, there's a whole fucking YouTube video. It was in like, like 2011? When was that that they killed him? Yeah, there's like a whole YouTube video where like it centered around a baseball game where it was like, it was the only game of the fucking night and like halfway through the fucking game that's when everyone's phones got alerts like, hey, Osama Bin Laden had assassinated and everyone's just chanting USAA yeah. and in my liberal years I was like, oh yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll admit, at the time, I was happy that Obama did it. I was like, yeah, rubbing that in your face, Republicans, because Obama did it and you guys couldn't get yeah. it done. But, like, yeah. now looking back, like, we'll definitely have to do several episodes on 9 11 because I don't yeah. even, know, I honestly don't even know if we'll be able to because I feel like we wouldn't be able to do it justice with what Truanon did. If you haven't listened to it, oh, yeah. check yeah. out their five part fucking series Dude, on 9 11. Incredible. It's absolutely amazing. And, like, that literally turned me from thinking that anybody who said 9 11 was an inside job was a crackpot into thinking that that definitely was a fucking inside job, just not in the way that crackpots typically tend to say that. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yep. And also just all I'm saying is like they, <laughs> they killed Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi in like the most visceral public ways that they possibly could have. Yeah. And like just showed everybody and they're like, Oh no, the guy we've been pursuing for 20 years, we wanted to bury him at sea out of respect. Yeah, right. It's like fucking breaks my heart. I Bro, it's I've never seen I won't watch it. His last words where he's like, What did I do to you people? Don't I don't recommend anyone watch it. It's terrible. I'll go read the green book instead. Yeah, read it. <laughs> Dude, and then we got fucking US congressmen on the floor of the fucking Congress on fucking C-SPAN saying, yeah, let's use the fucking Libya model against North Korea. <sighs> Bro. No, Kim Jong-un is not that dumb. He's not going to give up his nukes. Oh, fuck not no. That not. Was Dude's base is he a probably, motherfucker. He meant well, but like, I, yeah, think, he Kim meant Jong, well. I think Kim Jong learned 
from Gaddafi not to give up the nukes like that. Fucking oh, yeah. probably. Yeah. Like, hopefully. Yeah. Anyway. Mike, what was that? You made a one post with that, like, oh, let's see what this old capitalist guy has to say about, like, child labor. Oh, shit. Um, who was that guy? Dude, that shit was insane. Where yeah. He was like, yeah, like, was. basically, if a parent can't sell their child for labor, it's an infringement upon their rights. Ooh. I don't know if it was like Hayek or. Oh, dude, it was so depressing. <laughs> like Hayek or Friedman, one of those assholes. Like it's one of the. I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to yeah. go back and search through my post and look at. Is it. that is that a real quote? Oh, it was. Dude. He had some really. I, we will have to. to say about child I will find it after this podcast, Jaren. I will send it to you. It lives rent free in my head. Oh my god! It fucks with me every time I go to sleep. <laughs> Like, it is so inhumane and just peak capitalism. If I can't sell my kids, what's the point? Right? Like, so far as to say, like, they shouldn't have to provide food or shelter for their children. Like, it was fucking nuts. Exactly like I was saying, my wife showed me a, a recent documentary, Cannibal Island. Where in the USSR, they sent a bunch of people to this island with, like, minimal food, minimal equipment. And, like, after 10 minutes, it's just just straight atrocity. Like, how terrible these people were treated on this island. And then, like, one historian comes out of nowhere and is like, yeah, they were uh, anti-revolutionaries. And you're like, oh, fucking, that's why they got sent there, those fucks. Yeah. Yeah, good. I'm glad they ate each other. <laughs> That's the society they truly wanted anyways. I mean, distilled. Yeah, more or less. Like, fuck them. No, capitalism is like being in a store full of delicious cakes and the only thing you're allowed to eat is each other. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's actually pretty accurate. Speaking of my wife gaslighting me, look what she fucking picked me up. Oh, my God. <laughs> right? <laughs> Yes. For our listeners, it's the Gulag Archipelago. It's Solzhenitsyn, however you say that guy's name. That dickhead. It's not uh, worth it. So upset. Just don't forget, he admitted on his deathbed it was all lies. Yes. Dude, I'm like half foot in, half foot out on simulation theory, depending on the day. Like, Same. I, I honestly don't know at this point. <laughs> like, I mean, I've honestly, once Donald Trump became president, I was like, simulation might be a thing. <laughs> I remember Joe Rogan talked about simulation. He's like, I subscribed to it when Congressman Weiner got caught for sending dick pics. He's like, there's no way you can tell me there's not a simulation. Oh, and well, also fucking Gates, whatever the hell he was like, yeah, call it Gates Gate. And then it happened. Dude, <laughs> did you see the picture I sent in the, uh, in the general of Matt Gates <laughs> with the, uh, those girls? Pizza Gates. Yeah, Pizza Gate confirm. You can see pizza on the, like in the background. Oh, I didn't see that. Yeah, that's what like that's the cherry on oh top my. of that picture. Yeah, I feel like you always find the best memes first because I'm, I see I'm you so post good them and then like days sorry. later. <laughs> yeah, you're so quick on the draw. I like Reddit a lot. <laughs> yeah, Jaren, you're gonna love this. I was browsing the old Reddits, and you know how amazing Reddit anarchists are, right? Oh my god. Yeah, do it. Hurt me. This dude, while at the same time, like, condemning China for being authoritarian, was in, like, the Anarchism 101, talking about setting up anarchic laws, 
and if people disobey them, they should be murdered. That's so anarchist. What? what? <laughs> Just be a tanky at that point, dude. Right? Like, it's fine. I would, I would respect that. Shit. No, dude, the most cringy thing, like, on anarchist forums right now is the Uyghur thing. Because they're, like, jumping headfirst into believing literally every Western-sponsored thing about it. And I'm just like, you know, you can make valid criticisms of off-left without, like, eating state-sponsored Western feces. It's possible. Mm-hmm. I like that one. I saw a fucking meme. I got to see if I can find it and send it. It was, like, this anar- like dude with, like, the anarchist logo. And it was like, I don't believe in imperialism or imperialist propaganda. And then, like, in the next frame, he's, like, shaking the CIA's hand. And it's like... Yes, I totally believe the Uyghur genocide. <laughs> yeah. And then, like, at the end, it's like the anarchist guy's like, I don't believe in anything. <laughs> Dude, literally, though. I'm just like, God, why are you so, like, intent on understanding things until it bothers you? And then you just go with the convenient shit. It yes. sucks. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, like, we were just all over the place. That's not going to be coherent at all. And then I edited it. I was like, oh, that's actually, like, one of our more fun, easy to listen to episodes. I actually really liked it. Yeah, it was good. My favorite part was before we like were really recording was all of us just going back and forth, being completely wrong on what NFTs are. Mm-hmm. That was my favorite part. <laughs> I thought we should like keep that in, and like even when we got to the NFTs part, like no, let's not actually discuss what they are. Let's just keep going back to what we were doing, where we're just arguing all completely wrong points about what nfts are because fuck them anyways i mean to be honest i'm still not even sure if what we left in is really all that accurate but whatever like keep it vague fuck nfts whatever man Okay, everybody, welcome back again to the Turn Leftist Podcast. I'm Mike, as always, he, him, and tonight I'm here with Ward, he, him, and Jaron, he, him as well. And tonight we're going to do another round of Q&A. I think it will be another episode where we get through just a few and it takes us a long time because of the nature of these questions. Just thanks again to everybody on Instagram and everybody in the Discord who sent us these questions because they were really good. I can attest that, you know, me and Ward and Jaron have all had a good time looking at these questions and coming up with answers to them. And a note. The further along the episode gets, the drunker we are. So if any answers near the end are incorrect, there you go. You bet. <laughs> Buckle up, buttercup. I only brought two beers upstairs. I don't know. We'll see. I don't know how bad I can get off of two. We can wait for you to get more. No, I mean, I, I can pause whenever, obviously. I can always get more. I could get six more if I want. All right. So the first one we have on the list for tonight. Question. Does it matter if a nation is to the letter Marxist as long as they advance material conditions? Or do you want to uh, go ahead with your answer since you wrote a pretty good one for this? Yeah. So all right. at first when I saw this question, my initial answer was no, no, it doesn't. I'm usually the first one, especially as a tanky, that will set aside my ideology for improvements in material conditions. Evidence of such is all the fucking times that I've stand AOC. <laughs> 
but after a bit of thought, it's definitely the wrong answer. Um, quickly looking at the Nordic model will be the prime example of this. The material conditions of the people in those countries are pretty good. Better than the U.S. and some other places. But the model is still one of capitalism. The improvement of material conditions for the people in, say, Sweden or some shit has relied directly upon the exploitation of workers and countries in the global south. Capitalism has to continually grow and expand. It expands beyond one's area into national, then international exploitation. The Nordic model is just a capitalism that has been able to export most of its exploitation overseas so that it's not apparent to those in the benefiting country or to those viewing it from a liberal lens. That being said, to the letter Marxist isn't a requirement either. In actuality, no country can or would be to the letter Marxist. Nor should they be. As Lenin noted citing Engels, our doctrine is not a dogma, but a guide to action. Marxism isn't a rigid concept. It's a flexible, evolving ideology. Looking at existing socialist countries like the DPRK, China, and Cuba, none of them have the exact same social systems. They have their own systems, and they have led to material improvements for their people there. As Marx said, the proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest, by degree, all capital from the bourgeoisie, and to centralize all instruments of production in the hands of the state, i.e., the proletariat organizes the ruling class, and to increase the total productive forces as rapidly as possible. Of course, in the beginning, this cannot be affected except by means of despotic inroads on the rights of property and on the conditions of bourgeoisie production. By means of measure, therefore, which apparently economically insufficient and untenable, but which, in the course of the movement, outstrip themselves, necessitate further inroads upon the old social order and are unavoidable as a means of entirely revolutionizing the mode of production. These measures will, of course, be different in different countries. In summary, material conditions can be improved for some under capitalism, but not for all. Capitalism requires an oppressed underclass. Real improvements in material conditions can only be made through Marxist revolution and policies. And how that Marxist revolution looks will never be the same twice. And it definitely won't conform to whatever utopian ideological fantasy that some people hold of what it should look like. Looking at you, Western leftists. <laughs> well put. Yeah, that was really good. I didn't even bother adding on to that one because that was so good. And, Can I attack uh, something onto that? that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Go dude. for it, please. So I'm going to take a shot at Marx here, but in a way that I think that Marx would have been, you know, approved of because the whole thing is about evolving ideologies. Mm-hmm. The primary thing that I have found with, with Marxism and also with communism to an extent is that there is this focus on class politics, and it has sort of a weakened emphasis on identity politics that has come up again and again. And you can even see this in, you know, Marx wrote this in like 1840 on the Jewish question. There's an essay of his. And I don't know if he abandoned this later because Capital was written after, but suffice to say this essay was really derogatory towards a lot of identity politics and and really failed to understand what they are. Um, We can go into detail with that some other time. But the point being is, I think that trying to be to the letter Marxist, quote unquote, defeats the point of Marxism. And if you are not able to flexibly assert ideologies that involve regional components, you know, ethic components, ethnic components, and also identity components, then you're going to have a revolution that ultimately fails. Whenever we do the communism versus anarchism episode, 
that's something that I will end up bringing up because it's, it's, it was the weak point. It was the chink in the armor behind the Iron Curtain, in my opinion. Yeah. As a tanky, yeah. I will proudly declare, fuck class reductionism. All my homies hate class reductionism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we actually, there was another question that we have in here. I can't remember which one, but I touched on that a little bit. It's a really good point to touch on this. Like, we have to take both into account because capitalism itself has co-opted class reductionism and ignoring identity politics for its own purposes. And that's why you have to do both at the same time. But we will Absolutely. talk about that more in a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the defining point between those two would be that capitalism ignores identity politics and or commodifies it intentionally, whereas the the communist revolutions over the world have not done these things intentionally. It's just managing people is hard and people are very different. And especially with the Soviet union, I mean, the the place was huge. You know, you're asking someone to do a job that (laughs) it's damn near impossible to, to unify all of that. So to me, capitalism is, is predatory in that sense. And with communism, it's something that Marxist dialectics could actually fix. Oh, and also the other reason I didn't add on to what Ward said is because Again, in the same question that I'm referring to, I mentioned that Caitlin Johnstone article that just came out yesterday, and I think that applies really well here. But again, we will get into that in just a little bit. For now, let's go on to the next question. What are things that the Chinese government does that y'all leftists support and value? Uh, (laughs) Oh, boy, Mike. So go ahead. I'll let you go first, Ward, since you answered this one as well. All right. So things that I like that the Chinese government has done. Eliminating absolute poverty, becoming the leader in green energy, not dropping a bomb on foreign country in over 40 years, their Belt and Road Mm -hmm. Initiative, which is objectively better than what the IMF does, more infrastructure spending than the US and Europe combined, commitments to socialism by 2050, and the genocide of deserts. (laughs) (laughs) I would say, yeah, I like all those things, and uh, those are all good things. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know a whole lot about the Belt and Road Initiative other than from what I've looked into it, like all the criticism that people have about China being imperialist with their relationship to Africa and like, you know, global South countries, they always make it seem like they're just doing the same thing that any, you know, Western capitalist country like the U.S. would do. And from what I've read, the relationship is not extractive. Like they're not putting these countries into debt or just taking their resources or their labor the way that, you know, the U.S. would. So, I mean, that's great. Like, if they actually are developing these countries a little bit for their benefit. If you want, um, if you want to, yeah, I mean. Yeah, so the main thing is you have to compare to what else is happening. The other big player that invests in infrastructures in Africa is the IMF. They require changing of constitutional laws to neoliberal policies. China does not require any, like, changes to legislation for the country to receive like loans for the Belt and Road Initiative. Mm-hmm. The infrastructure is built, trains, hospitals, ports, major infrastructure that has improved the material conditions of the people in Africa. We can even link in the show notes. I have an article written by the person who coined the term neocolonialism on China's policies and how it's mm-hmm. not neocolonialism. The loans, they're quick to forgive debt. They foregone payments during covid to these countries um the interest rates are a lot lower than what the imf requires Mm -hmm. so a term you'll hear in regards to that is like debt saddle diplomacy Mm -hmm. and 
I can link in the show notes some videos of economists breaking it down and how debt settle economy is not a thing like this debt settle diplomacy Mm -hmm. like it doesn't exist it's a myth and that's like the biggest thing like against china saying that it's oh they're imperialist is the belt and road initiative it's like but we're not going to talk about how they don't drop bombs yeah not going to talk about like bolivia like how did the u.s deal with bolivia again with their lithium like Said their government was like illegitimate and try to fucking overthrow them just because Bolivia was like, hey, if we're going to give out all this lithium, maybe we We should should benefit a little bit, you know. But you know who they quickly signed up with? China, because China was like, oh, okay, non-predatory agreements for mutual gains. Yeah, absolutely. That's Chinese foreign policy. Perfectly to the T. I think it speaks volumes too that that coup fell, that that coup fell through. To me, the U.S. global power is waning, and that's that's proof of it. And we wonder why we're on the verge of a. We are in new Cold War with China. No, only about U.S. is losing its grip. I think something funny too with the Africa thing, because again, you guys know I have my qualms with China and ship, and I'm not about to sit here and lie about it. I'll send you all the videos you want, brother. I'll turn you into a tanky. I got them all. (laughs) <laughs> I got, we can save it for another episode, but I mean, if you, if you look at like, for instance, since China's been expanding its influence into Africa, the U.S. has been expanding its budget in AFRICOM, which is our, our army in Africa, mm-hmm. um, which is yes. made to fight a bunch of Sunni insurgencies that we're probably funding. In fact, we're definitely funding. So our, you know, our counter offer to the Chinese offering you know, low interest or zero interest loans is will blow you up from two different angles. So it's really not a hard decision. I feel for African countries to be like, yeah, China sounds better. Yeah. Yeah. An interesting note on like the militarization of AFRICOM, like there are more military members, U.S. military members deployed in Africa than there are in the Middle East where our wars, supposedly called wars, are taking place. There's more troops in Africa that just reinforces the fact that we are in a cold war with China. Yeah. Y'all might know this too. I'm not really, um, I didn't follow up on what they did when they like took Jack Ma aside. I guess he just disappeared for a month or something like that. I'm I'm assuming he disappeared for several months. (laughs) And then he reappears and he's, he reappeared at a fundraiser. (laughs) He's playing ball all of a sudden. I don't care whatever happened to him. <laughs> it he's seems like, good. it seems like he's it happened for the better. He seems like he's a better person because of it, <laughs> and he seems like a less predatory billionaire, which I am all for. Reeducated, yeah, you know, he probably got put to hard labor, which I'm, yeah, a billionaire deserves that. What I put for this question: resisting the U.S. and other capitalist countries. And that's the beginning and the majority of my support for China or any other existing socialist country. This is where I mentioned Caitlin Johnstone's article. So I would suggest that everyone go read Caitlin Johnstone's most recent article called Opposing All Governments Equally is Supporting the Most Powerful Government. And it was just published yesterday. And I did take a couple excerpts out of of there that I would like to read. So she says, the U.S. centralized empire is waging nonstop wars that have killed millions of human beings just since the turn of the century. And people will still say things like, quote, we've really got to do something about Cuba. The U.S. centralized empire is circling the planet with hundreds of military bases, working to destroy any nation which disobeys its dictates and brandishing Armageddon weapons at its enemies like a drunken hillbilly with a shotgun. And people are still <laughs> like, well, something must be done about China's intellectual property theft. 
Among the violent and destructive governments in our world, one towers high above all the others in a league entirely of its own. And in the malign behavior of its allies, who effectively function as arms of the same single empire on foreign policy, the gap between it and the next worst offender grows even greater. And yet somehow many people act as though this power structure should not face a unique level of criticism and scrutiny. A lot of propaganda adult empire loyalists bleat the terms whataboutism and false equivalency at anyone who responds to criticism of nations like Russia or China by pointing out the terrible things the U.S. does and continues to do, implying that America is far better than those other nations and that even bringing them into the same conversation is absurd. And they are correct. It is absurd, but for the exact opposite reason they think. The U.S. is far, far worse. Quick note on international military bases, the U.S. has like 800 of them. All other countries combined have like 80. Unbelievable, dude. Like, it's so blatant. And like, that's not hard information to find. Um, But she goes on, there is no other power structure that is anywhere near as violent, thuggish, and authoritarian as the one that is currently using its military and economic might to murder, starve, bully, and cajole the rest of humanity into submission and obedience to its interests. No one else comes anywhere remotely close. Any analysis of international dynamics which fails to place this fact front and center in its understanding is necessarily a flawed, power-serving analysis. It's not just the brainwashed human livestock of the mainstream who fail to take this reality into account but also many self-styled, quote, anarchists and other ideologues who fancy themselves to be up-punching critics of power. The mantra, quote, I oppose all governments equally, will often see such types enthusiastically supporting the downfall of U.S.-targeted governments like Syria and China, simply because those governments are more authoritarian than they'd like. Because it's not informed by a reality-based weighting of world power dynamics as they actually exist, their, quote, anti-authoritarianism sees them supporting the most tyrannical agendas of the most tyrannical power structure on Earth. That was the end of uh, what I took out of her article. And I, I would suggest read the whole thing. It's really not much longer than that, but... That was a great excerpt. It, I mean, that's like, it nails it so well because it's not so much that I even support everything that China does. And I'm going to expand on that in a little bit here, but like, it really just is about the fact that they are the only world power at the moment that even stands a chance against the US. Like, what else even is there? And for that reason alone, I would support it. But again, critically, like only supporting the things that they actually do in the interest of working people, in the interest of building socialism, in the interest of resisting U.S. imperialist hegemony and capitalist hegemony around the world, but not beyond that. Like, I'm not going to just uncritically or you know, blindly support it. And just to explain that a little bit, I would support any action taken by China or any socialist country as long as it's used in favor of working people and against reactionaries. And the easiest example is when it comes to Uyghurs. And the way I understand it, again, just to explain it briefly, and the way I continue to understand it, the more I read about it, is that the U.S. has sponsored fundamentalist Islamic terrorism groups there, and China is detaining people, re-educating them, and doing this to combat terrorism that was intended to destabilize China, because that's in the U.S.'s interest. And if it crosses the line at some point into actual persecution of a religious or ethnic minority, and only for that reason, and if it ever is like not just anti-far-right fundamentalist Islam anymore, then I wouldn't support that. And just as I realize that there are like, I'm almost certain, I, I can almost guarantee, I haven't seen like evidence of it, but I'm almost certain that there have been abuses because the people in China are humans. The Uyghurs themselves are humans. Like everybody involved is, they're human beings. So there's going to be mistakes made. And I wouldn't support that. Like if anybody actually is committing abuses of power, then I wouldn't support that. But that's where critical support comes in as far as I'm concerned. Would you have board? Yeah. Like the, when it comes to the Uyghur issue, it's not a genocide. When you look into the information and you see the sources that are cited that claim a genocide are just not based in facts at all. But that's not to say that China is doing the most amazing work with Uyghurs. Are they doing an overall net positive? I would personally say yes. But 
the policies in and of themselves can be questioned. Like that's why if there was to be an investigation, it'd be have to be a human rights thing because maybe some of the policies are a little broad, you know, like a suspected person that needs to go to detainment camp, they take their whole family. You know, that's something we should question, but it's not a matter of, oh, they're killing a hundred million fucking Uyghurs. Yeah. That's not what's happening. We should be asking the real questions like, how are you detaining these Uyghurs? Just the same way that we should be asking U.S. immigration policies. Why are you detaining these people? Why are you separating their families? Mm -hmm. It's the same questions we should be asking, but people will treat it differently because it's China. What you got, Jaren? This is just an additional resource for that particular subject because it is a hot button issue. And, you know, it gets you in a lot of fights online. It will... Uh, draw a lot of criticism from people um, and just, you know, they will shut you out completely based on this one issue right now. So one of the resources you can look into is uh, the Turkestan Liberation Organization and various Sunni insurgencies that exist on that particular border with China. And they have had a pretty longstanding issue with militant Sunni extremism, which, as we know, is tied to uh, Western intelligence agencies frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in my, in my mind, I think that this is a bit of a backlash for like China supporting the war on terror when that happened, because they did do that. And I'm not saying that they deserve it. They most certainly do not. But I think that China has made strides to distance itself from that mentality and from that mistake that it made, because that was a very horrendous one. Um, and now they're having to deal with some of the backlash as a result of that. And I definitely agree with what you guys are saying insofar as there probably are individual abuse cases. It would not surprise me. And to me that, you know, the, the critical support thing is, is really the, that's the puzzle piece that fits together with anarchism for me is do, do I truly, I'm a weird anarchist. Do I truly believe that there can even be a stateless system? I don't. I don't think it's possible. I think it's a great thing to strive for. I think even Marxism gets that wrong. What we need to be asking is in whatever type of social organization that we have, can we continue to look at it critically? Can we continue to not idolize people in power simply because they have it? And can we reform those models of power if they become horrible? So the question isn't, should there be places where people get employment and better education and ways to get themselves out of poverty that's state-sponsored? Maybe there should be. My question would be like, if the headmaster of one of these places with the Uyghurs is systemically abusing him because he's a fucking racist, can we get him out? Yeah. I mean, that's what it comes down to. Like, that's what critical support means to me is that, like, I remember you said it early on in one of the first episodes you were on with us, Jaren, where you said, like, the way you think of anarchism is that it's a constant critique of systems of power in order to make them more democratic, more accountable to the people that they're supposed to serve. And that's like the best idea that I could possibly think of, whether it's anarchism or communism, because they should both be striving for that exact same goal. And to put it in that terms where you can never have a completely stateless, perfect utopia, that seems more realistic to me than any of the, you know, what we would call anarchities who just are, you know, edgy (laughs) teens who have this idea of like actually achieving that utopia at some point that doesn't sound like it's even compatible with humans as they exist like yeah and i don't want to get into like the human nature argument but like there's a reality at play here like you can't really just have people that are going to not be flawed human beings and have this utopian society that you might want to strive for but that doesn't mean don't strive for it and if that striving is a constant struggle and that is anarchism then i guess i'm a fucking anarchist i don't know it could be the worst tanky ever would you go uh, sorry 
Yeah, and like I joked last episode when Jaren wasn't on, I was like, what? Why the fuck do we even put up with him? <laughs> this is why we put up with him. This is a good anarchist. When I was writing this whole thing up, I was thinking to, to myself, I'm like, man, I think Jaren and I would actually find a lot of common ground here because that really is what it's about. It's like opposing authority when it's abused, when it's being used against working people, when it's being used against marginalized people. Yeah. And then supporting authority when it's used against the right people. Like, it makes me think of that moment that we had when we were on with uh, MJ and Chris. And we were talking about how Nazis don't get free speech. And if we see Nazis out in the street, like, fucking bash their teeth in. And yeah. Jaron and I were both in 100% agreement on that. Like, yeah. on different sides of the authoritarian spectrum. Well, and it, yeah. it, you know, the only other thing I'll tack onto it is just like, if we were to have a podcast episode where it's just about China and we were going to duke it out over like the good and bad things about China. The main point that I would make has nothing to do with China, and that's that I'm not comparing it to the U.S. Because, like that article said, it's fucking impossible. Yeah. It's impossible. Like, the scale of shit that the U.S. is responsible for exceeds that of China exponentially. So, any critique I can offer of a place like China, and I do have valid ones, can't be put into that limelight of, oh, well, you better be thankful you're here. Cause like they're not even comparable. I went on and explained a little more just about the China thing. I was saying like, I would apply that to all forms of authority and all means of authority. And so when it comes to China, this is like, when it comes to like the social credit score where their censorship, I would say the same thing about that, that I say about any other aspect of the authority that they're using. If they're censoring fascists, great. If they're using a social credit score to oppress fascists, great. But as soon as they're using that against marginalized people or working class people, well, then I wouldn't support that anymore. You know what I mean? Like, that's really as simple as it is. And that's what I mean by my critical support of any authoritarian or any, you know, quote unquote authoritarian or any socialist state. Can I jump in on that real quick? Yeah, please. <laughs> of course. As far as the social credit score thing, like people in the U.S. act like your FICO credit score and criminal history aren't the same fucking thing. Mm. And those do affect marginalized people based on how much they're worth and based on their skin color and religion, et cetera. So, like, it's actually the same thing, but worse. But as an anarchist, I hate both, Jaren. So, of course, China's bad. I mean, I do kind of hate both, but one is definitely worse than the other. Yeah, used yeah. to be. <laughs> yeah, from what I can tell, social credit scores for, like, oh, you've done crimes. Like, you've done things that can harm the public. Like, you've committed fraud or something. So your social credit score goes down. Versus ours, which is based on debt. Like, that's somehow fucking better. The last thing I will say here is, um, I'm going to quote Michael Parenti. And this is a oh, common yes. video that circulates of his. If you just look up Michael Parenti on the Cuban Revolution, you'll find it. But So here he's talking about the working class people in Nicaragua. And he says, quote, They were treated like animals before. They weren't allowed to read. They weren't taught to read. So you compare a country from what it came from with all its imperfections and those who demand instant perfection the day after the revolution, they go up and say, are there civil liberties for the fascists? Are they going to be allowed their newspapers and their radio programs? Are they going to be able to keep all their farms? The passion that some of our liberals feel the day after the revolution, the passion and the concern that they feel for the fascists, the civil rights and the civil liberties of those fascists who were dumping and destroying and murdering people before. Now the revolution has got to be perfect. It's got to be flawless. Well, that isn't my criteria. My criteria is what happens to those people who couldn't read, what happens to those babies that couldn't eat, that died of hunger. And that's why I support revolution. Revolution that feeds the children gets my support, not blindly, not unqualified, and the Reaganite government that tries to stop that kind of process, that tries to keep those people in poverty and illiteracy and hunger, that gets my undiluted animosity and opposition. 
And I think the Reaganite government is so based. I mean, I, this is like a one-to-one <laughs> parallel of the Reaganite government to all the governments that we've seen in our entire life when it comes to existing socialist countries and the way that they treat them so hostily. So yeah, I think that you know, while it was about the Cuban Revolution, I think it applies perfectly well to any existing socialist country now. Dude, side note, uh, that video that I sent you from Parenti that you posted mm-hmm. on like communist governments and like how they had to establish secret police, yeah, and, like stuff like that. And it was like, oh yeah, like how they found an unfortunate truth about themselves that they had to establish a secret police because of the imperialist threat. Yeah. And the reactionary threat from within, like how they're saying, like, oh, if it wasn't for Stalin, there wasn't a KGB. It's like, no, if there wasn't for a CIA, there wasn't a KGB. Like, if there wasn't for NATO, there wouldn't have been a Warsaw Pact. Yeah. I fucking love that video. I mean, Michael Prentice is the best. I actually, there's some more stuff I have about him later. I don't know what his real struggle is, if it's with class or if it's with microphones. Michael Prentice? Yeah. Have you never seen the microphone, like, highlights? No. Dude, at every single fucking public event, like all those fucking videos you've seen of Michael Parenti, at some point in time, he has a fucking microphone issue. Because <laughs> <laughs> the capitalists, man, they're trying to cut him off. Dude, like, yeah, like microphones cut out, they don't work, mic stands are fucking going all over the place. Like, something happens every time. And, like, I think on YouTube, there's like a highlight reel of him just struggling with microphones. <laughs> yeah. I still say that's why my internet sucks every time I try to come on and record the podcast. Oh, it's always I mean, like... It's and Langley, man. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. I'm like... <laughs> the fucking Langley listeners. Shout out right, to Langley. So I gotta look at the, the SoundCloud again. I hope we don't have listeners in Langley. That would actually suck. I'm just saying, like, they're gonna put me on a watch list. <laughs> people want to criticize social credit scores. Um, so this next question is... Uh, how would a Vanguard party be constructed as to avoid the same hierarchy capitalism has? And so I just ripped a bunch of stuff from Marxist.org uh, to start us off here. And so this was from the page titled The Leninist Concept of the Revolutionary Vanguard Party. And so there's a nice little uh, passage here. In the epoch of imperialism and the decay of capitalism, the capitalist system is incapable of maintaining systematic improvements in the standards of living of the world's working masses and preserving democratic rights where they exist at all. Capitalist society is now an absolutely reactionary social system. The imperialist epoch is the epoch of wars and revolutions as capitalism thrashes around in its death agonies. The death agony of capitalism has repeatedly subjected the world's masses to military dictatorship and impoverishment. All around the world, capitalism threatens to plunge humanity once more into the catastrophic cycle of depression, fascism, and world war. Only the world working class can lead humanity out of the historical impasse of capitalism by making the world socialist revolution. The death agony of capitalism and the consequent misery for the world's masses can only be terminated by the conscious workers' revolution. The socialist revolution is a conscious act of the working class. To realize this necessity, the vanguard fighters of the working class must be armed with a conscious strategy, a revolutionary program, and a revolutionary vanguard party. Revolutionary class consciousness of the necessity of socialist revolution and of the methods needed for victory develops in the working class only by the means of building the revolutionary party. The revolutionary party, based on the Leninist concept of the vanguard party and composed of the class conscious vanguard fighters of the working class, is the sole historical organ of revolutionary consciousness. This conscious strategy and vanguard instrument for the preparation and leadership of the socialist revolution can only mean the recreation of Trotsky's world party of the workers' socialist revolution, the Fourth International. The Russian Revolution of October 1917 meant simultaneously the victory of the Leninist concept of the revolutionary vanguard party and the smashing defeat of the Menshevik theory of the broad, quote, Marxist party. The Mensheviks held that the working class would spontaneously 
developed towards revolutionary consciousness and that therefore the task of Marxists was to organize a party that would reflect this development. By relying on spontaneous militancy for the development of revolutionary consciousness, the Mensheviks delegated the historical tasks of the revolutionary vanguard onto the spontaneous historical process and inevitably built an opportunist party that eventually betrayed the socialist revolution. By contrast, Lenin, understanding that revolutionary consciousness did not develop spontaneously, but had to be constantly fought for, set out to build a vanguard party capable of fighting for the Marxist program and transforming the revolutionary potential of spontaneous militancy into revolutionary consciousness. Okay, two more shorter paragraphs here. The working class develops towards political consciousness through the clash of rival leaderships and the political conflict between parties. Revolutionary consciousness can only develop by means of the dialectic between revolutionary theory and revolutionary practice, formulated in the program and developed only by means of the revolutionary party. The task of the revolutionary party is to win the majority of the working class to the revolutionary banner by means of the fight for the transitional program. That is, to transform the revolutionary potential of spontaneous militancy into revolutionary communism and defeat all middle-class misleaderships active in the workers' movement. To turn aside from the Leninist theory of the Vanguard Party to the Menshevik strategy of reliance on spontaneous militancy means in reality to turn aside from the socialist revolution. The working class cannot, quote, spontaneously develop towards revolutionary consciousness even under the most revolutionary conditions. Revolutionary consciousness develops only through the fight for the revolutionary party. Revolutionary consciousness will not appear spontaneously in a revolutionary situation and the Revolutionary Party cannot be improvised on the basis of this spontaneous consciousness. To base the strategy of the workers' vanguard on this assumption is criminal abstentionism. The Socialist Revolution is only made possible when the Revolutionary Party prepares the revolution. That is, when the preparatory period is used for the formation of a Leninist vanguard party. So it's a little repetitive, and it's a little dense, but I went on and I watched some videos about Leninism and read some other sources just to get a really clearer idea of it. And the main points that I would take from that, um, I also want to mention that it goes on a little bit further in some other passages to discuss what they called the workers' revolution tendency, or what they abbreviate as the WRT. And talking about revolutionary spontaneity, the only excerpt I'll take from that is that they say that the working class is instinctively, spontaneously revolutionary socialist in the right material conditions. And that was what you know Trotskyists and the workers' revolution tendency thought. For the Menshevik tendency, objective circumstances act on workers to make workers into communists. The WRT talks of workers being made into revolutionary socialists by objective events and goes so far as to state that the working class is spontaneously revolutionary and that the role of the Revolutionary Party is not to transform the spontaneity into consciousness, but to recruit workers revolutionized by objective circumstances. This is an automatist, spontaneous, and opportunist distortion of Marxism. It is a reified view of the working class. It is completely false. So to sort of unpack that a little bit. So what I was thinking from that is that central organization of the Vanguard Party is absolutely necessary because on their own, the working class, no matter how genuine their desire for change or the overthrow of capitalism, they will always fragment and splinter off into various groups and become ineffective. And that's where we see leftist infighting. Like all of these things, like what's really great about this is like all of these things are relevant to our situation right here, right now in the modern day. So differentiating between spontaneous uprising and conscious revolutionary political action is an important distinction. I believe that was the entire purpose of the Frankfurt School, was when the revolution didn't just spontaneously happen because conditions of capitalism got worse for working classes. The Frankfurt School came around and they said, well, why not? Like, where did Marx go wrong? Like, what didn't he understand about capitalism? Why isn't the revolution happening? I mean, a lot of people are still asking that today. Like, that's like a huge part of leftism. If you talk to anybody in any leftist spaces, they will wonder why is it that people are not more revolutionary? Why aren't people more militant? 
And it's because it doesn't happen on its own because we don't have a Vanguard party. And I'm going to get into why at the, at the end of this. But without the Vanguard party, workers end up merely negotiating the terms of the sale of labor with the capitalists. And they don't actually seek a fundamental restructuring of society. And that's where you get people like, you know, democratic socialists, people like the Bernie Sanders and, Warren, and Elizabeth Warrens of the world and AOC even. It's like they're not seeking to overturn capitalism, but they will hope to negotiate better terms for sale of labor with the capitalists. And we see where that gets us. It doesn't really change anything. The leadership of the party. So this is actually getting to where the actual question at hand is, how do you prevent the Vanguard party from just becoming another corrupt hierarchy like any capitalist party or any capitalist government would? And the answer is that the leadership of the party should be competent revolutionaries who have dedicated their lives to the cause, constantly pushing forward in their goals to abolish the capitalist mode of production, establish socialism, and leading the rest of the working class who are not full-time revolutionaries. So it literally should be that they rise up out of the revolution itself. Like these would have to be people like the people that the government assassinates. And getting into like sort of the end of this, like why I think this is so relevant to our modern day is like we can look at all of this and see why there hasn't been a revolution in the US, the UK, any of the capitalist Western countries, uh, despite how much capitalism increasingly squeezes working class people. And it's because capitalism has adapted because this knowledge is out there for everyone. Just like it's out there for us to read, like we can read all of Lendon on Marxist.org very easily and we can like watch videos and listen to podcasts and everything that dissects it and makes it easy for us to understand. Capitalists can and do do that. They understand, you know, Marxism probably as well as Marxists do and they adapt. So like when you have revolutionaries like Fred Hampton, Malcolm X, MLK, what happened to them? Like you can see what happens to actual revolutionaries. And it's like, it's very tough to do in the global north. What's up, Ward? Yeah, if, you, if you're wondering why a revolution hasn't happened in the U.S. yet, look into COINTELPRO. I mean, it's kind of like a cliche at this point, like for, you know, oh, tankies, you say everything is CIA propaganda, but like, look what they fucking do. Like, that's what the CIA does. Like, that is all the CIA exists to do is to stop there from being any kind of solidified worker leftist movement, not even in just the U.S., but anywhere in the world. Pretty yeah, much. Yeah, no, that's exactly why they were created like that's they been their whole existence this entire time and people will still act like oh yeah well i know like the cia like smuggled coke into the u.s from nicaragua but that was like in the 80s like they don't do that shit no more right okay it's like, that's <laughs> I mean, what's shit. most upsetting to me or operation mockingbird for that matter i mean there's there's a fucking catalog of shit they have done to disenfranchise and delegitimize anything besides capitalism. That's like my favorite meme where it's like, oh, the CIA doesn't do anything bad. And it's the dude going through all the drawers and they're all labeled like all these different operations that are just completely fucked. Midnight Climax. <clears throat> Such a good name. The only other thing I'll, I'll just tack on just to finish that up is that also the workers' movement should be as broad as possible. So while the leadership of the Vanguard Party should be composed of people who grew and you know, were democratically chosen out of the revolution itself, the workers' movement itself should be as broad as possible. And Lenin's idea was that it would essentially be made up of trade unions. Another reason that there hasn't been a revolution here in the U.S. is because trade unions have been squashed at every turn. And the leadership of the Vanguard Party should be organizational, appointing leaders in different areas, and disseminating agitational literature. Those were two of the main points that he had for what they should do as a vanguard party. And right there, I mean, to me, that speaks to the difference between a vanguard communist revolutionary party and a capitalist government or any kind of capitalist hierarchy. It's like the goals are, are different. It's like comparing apples and oranges. 
And that's probably the biggest point for me is like, you can assume that a Vanguard party would just turn into some kind of corrupt capitalist enterprise like anything else. But to assume that is really just viewing it from a capitalist lens. Like you're looking at it as if it were some kind of organization that was run for profit as opposed to something that is literally implemented for the purpose of overthrowing capitalism and serving working class people. Go ahead, Ward. Yeah, no, it's the logical fallacy of a false equivalence. You know, people equate what's happening in an existing socialist country to what happens in capitalist society. And they think, oh, well, they view it through the capitalist lens and go, oh, well, this is why it's happening. It's like, no, creating a false equivalence. The authority in state are just tools that can be used. Who wields them is what determines how they will be used and how they will affect people. A proletarian state is inherently different from a capitalist state. Yeah, and I mean, that's why, again, going back to the China thing, that's why I have a lot more respect for people who actually have, like, principled anarchist critiques of existing socialist countries. Like, yeah, if you actually do want to criticize abuses of power, corruption, any misuses of authority uh, when they're being used against working class and marginalized people, go ahead, like, do that. Like, I know if I talk to Jaron about China, he's going to do that. But I know if I like go on Instagram and I'm just memeing and I talk to a bunch of kids online, well, they're just going to say like some really tired and like, you know, just one liners that they obviously didn't come up with like, oh, well, China is just as bad as uh, the U.S. or it's just authoritarianism or imperialism with a red flag or like there was a really good. This kind of just speaks to the, the, the question in itself, though. I don't want to cut you off. Do you want to finish your last paragraph or um... actually I got I have more than I realized. So go ahead. <laughs> OK. So the initial question was like, so how do we prevent, you know, top down hierarchical bullshit from happening in a vanguard party? And you guys were already saying like, you know, it has to be democratic, obviously. So then the question becomes, how do we maintain democracy in such a party or during such an event? And this is part of like, you know, I'm always on my Instagram just being like, stop fucking infighting, stop fucking infighting. And this is why. Because so, you know, Marx laid out all of these awesome like class dialectics that have maintained their integrity far beyond what anyone could have ever expected. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Peter Kropotkin comes and stands on his shoulders and adds the missing elements that were not there before. And this is one of them. So there was something that Marx didn't address. That's a whole other class issue. And that is manual labor versus brain labor. So, you know, if you have someone who operates machines versus someone who has the ability to invent machines, there is an inherent class between those two. The inventor will always have more at their disposal from their respective authoritative uh, entity or government than the person who runs the machine. So we have to figure out how to create fluidity between the machine operator and the machine creator, right? Right and allow them to go back and forth as they want. Some people may want a more simple job for their entire life. They might want to just run a machine and go home to their family. Other people might want to invent. How many Einsteins have we lost because they were only taught to operate a machine? So in terms of the vanguard and expanding democracy, my answer would be everyone should be allowed the education and the opportunity to lead Everyone should be taught to be smart enough to lead should that be a path that they would like to go down. And that would improve the democratic aspect of something like a vanguard party to me is we don't necessarily want a commander and a bunch of soldiers. We want a bunch of commanders of which we democratically elect one to lead that. Yeah, I mean, that's what, that actually is a good improvement because I, the way I was thinking of it when I was reading all of this was that it would just be kind of a natural thing. Like the only spontaneous aspect of the revolution would be 
the people who end up being the leaders of it and composing the Vanguard Party would just sort of rise up out of the movement itself. But to specifically state that you want to teach every person in it to be potential Vanguard Party members and then, you know, still have them rise up out of it organically that way, that just is an improvement. Yeah, absolutely. So the only other thing I had to touch on wrapping up this question, because I hope that that explains enough, like how you prevent a Vanguard Party from becoming something other than a Vanguard Party. And literally, I guess the short answer for that is make sure that it's composed of leaders from the revolution itself. And then also people who are below it, like anybody who's not in the Vanguard Party are revolutionaries themselves and they have to have class consciousness. And it kind of sounds a lot to me like, again, relating it to how people think of the U.S., and how the chuds will typically think of what they're doing. And they think that they are preserving freedom because they are always watching their government and they're always making sure their government stays small by not giving, you know, poor mothers some milk or something that they need. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're doing it wrong, but they start with an idea that was good in its infancy, like holding your government accountable by always being vigilant. And what do they say? Like vigilance is the, the guard of freedom or the price of freedom is vigilance. You know what I mean? Like they always have those sayings that they have in all the, Three percenter circle is saying that like, you know, anybody who doesn't protect liberty is doomed to lose it. All, all the bullshit that they say. So they're not wrong in that sense, but they're just doing it for all the wrong reasons because they're protecting capitalism. They're protecting the hierarchy that holds them down. But I think the principle would be the same with the Vanguard Party. If you actually have people who are class conscious and they're working toward socialism, watching that their leaders of the Vanguard Party are pushing things toward more democratic and more worker oriented leadership. But then also... Just because it was interesting, like it made me sort of realize, like after reading all this stuff about the Vanguard Party, like why, again, we haven't had a socialist revolution in the capitalist West. And it's because they have things like, like just the way the class consciousness is actively impeded. And that's through media, like whether it's motivation culture, where it's all these people who are like, everything is like rise and grind on social media. Now it's like, you always got to hustle. You always got to be working all the time. Fuck hustle culture. Dude, that shit drives me nuts because it's all it. that, like that false hope of upward mobility, like they always have these pictures of like McMansions or whatever. Like you're going to have that someday if you just are working while you're on the toilet from your phone. But then also you have like half the country who's literally in false class solidarity with the wealthy. The right literally thinks that they are fighting the same fight as people who are miles above them in the social strata. Like they literally think that they are on the same side as billionaires. And I don't know what to, to do to like snap them out of it. I mean, class consciousness is like the real struggle if you, if you ask me, but would you have a word? No, I'd say part of avoiding a corrupt hierarchy in a vanguard party is like what we were saying that the conditions need to be right for a revolution part of those conditions is education is those people that are members of the vanguard party need to be educated in a leftist socialist education rather than a capitalist mindset so these will be people that understand actual material conditions and can understand a hierarchy for its organizational use rather than its exploitative. Yeah. And won't seek corruption because they don't have these inherent capitalist mindsets. The other thing I want to say is that, like, there is a distinct possibility that we have already had the people who would be a vanguard party here in the U.S., but they've been killed by police or by racists, by, you know, a bunch of far-right rednecks. Like, I remember it was this past year when all the the... BLM and Antifa protests were really ramping up. There was a time where five or six uh, black people in the South were found hung from trees and they were all ruled suicides, but they were yep. all prominent protest organizers. They were all like 
speakers in the Black Lives Matter movement, and they were all found really suspiciously dead, hung from trees, and they were all ruled suicides. And it's like, it seems very obvious to me what's going on there. But I mean, good luck trying to get that out as far as like a mainstream message. But like, and then the, um, when we were talking to Gray last week about the Socialist Rifle Association, and he was saying how the SRA is explicitly not a action-oriented group. They don't endorse any protests. They don't endorse any direct action because if they did, they would be shut down immediately. Like they'd probably have people assassinated. They'd probably have any kind of like crazy underhanded tactic you can think of used against them. But because they're like, what do you call it? Like a 501c4 and they're explicitly not action oriented group and they're not political and or like whatever they do to skirt the law to make sure that they don't get the heavy hand of the CIA and everything coming after them, which I'm sure they still have like agents in the club because that's how the CIA operates. But like, that's my point is, is really all to say that like, we've probably had people who were the Vanguard party and they just have been killed by the cops. And not to mention, I also just wanted to touch on a little bit, like just the fact that communism is so demonized. It occurred to me when I was writing this up, I was thinking about how cliche it is to bring up George Orwell in 1984 oh, or even... Well, I mean, and, or Aldous, I mean, that's the real comparison is Aldous Huxley with uh, Brave New World. Yeah, have you read Huxley, bro? <laughs> the distinction between the two is that like you have 1984 where all the knowledge is suppressed and they have Huxley where the knowledge is out there, but nobody bothers with it because they're just not interested. And I think that's the one that's more true to life because Marxist.org exists. BreadTube exists. Like all these leftist videos and YouTubers and podcasts, they all exist and everybody could go find this stuff out for themselves, but they don't either because communism has been so effectively demonized in their minds that they think it's evil. They think it's like just as bad as capitalism. They think it's imperialism with red flags. They think it's authoritarian, red fascism, whatever they think of it. So they just don't even bother to read theory or go seek any of this knowledge out. Or they just think that it's boring. Like they just think that there's nothing there. Even if they're not actively against it, they think that there's nothing there that they want to read from some old dead white guy from 200 years ago. You know what I mean? So they just don't even bother to seek this knowledge out when really like, all it is is an instruction manual for how to defeat capitalism and how to overturn the system if we want to see any kind of improvement in our lives. Yeah, every successful socialist revolution has fallen Lenin's model. That's how it is. There's also... Um, what did you have to say, Jaron? Well, I was just going to say, like, you know, and this does fall in line with, like, Marxist dialectics on revolutions that no two will ever be the same. And, you know, I could be completely wrong on this, but I think in the West including the BLM protests, because don't get me wrong, it was a very large group of people who were, you know, either behind specific political ideologies or non-aligned, and they just were passionate or whatever. But because of how decentralized it was, and there were a lot of anarchist organizations working with this that can go to protests and be involved in direct action. Like, I understand why PCUSA and the SRA don't do things like this, because they would immediately be targeted. But for organizations that fly under the radar, you know, this was the time for things to get moving. And it worked. It fucking worked. It scared the shit out of the system. And I think that that speaks to a larger point about Western revolutionary activity. And I'm not saying this is the only way to do it. In fact, I would kind of hope that there was a more organized way to do it. But if you look at like the late 1800s, early 1900s labor strikes, almost every single successful one was syndicalist in nature. It would be like, you know, one factory of workers or one group of workers at a seaport being like, fuck this shit, shutting it down. And then it would just start rolling down the coast or rolling through the Midwest or whatever. And that's how we got the eight hour workday. That's how we got workers comp. That's how we got benefits. Not that that was ended up being what we really needed. You know, we were bargaining. But in the West, in the belly of the beast, as we'd call it, I do think that like syndicalism 
has a lot of merit to it. If I were in somewhere like Cambodia, then I'd probably be a fucking Marxist, you know, because it seems to really work in other countries. But in the U.S., it's such a good question. Like, how do you do anything here? Like, it's so entrenched, not just in power structure, but in people's minds. Like, I, I know so many people that will say, yeah, Black Lives Matter and all this shit. And it's like, but we can't defund the police. And it's like, fuck you. You stand for nothing. Yeah. The last thing I will say on that, when I was writing this up, and it makes it sound very hopeless, at least for us here in like the global north and the US, the UK, all the quote unquote developed countries. But then it kind of leads me to that idea. Like I've heard people say that the next revolution or the real revolution now will come from the global south, like the actual exploited peoples that imperialism is built on. And I guess that gets into, I don't even know what the updated term would be, but I've always heard it called Maoism, third worldism. And I'm sure it's called something different now because I know third world is like an antiquated term itself. Even old school Chomsky said that before he became a doddering idiot. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. In his book, uh, Hopes and Prospects, he has a whole chapter on the potential of the third world for revolutionary activity and like placing hope in it. It makes sense. Uh, Would you have word before we move on to the next question? I would say, especially in terms of like a vanguard party or working towards a revolution, my main critiques of the Party of Communists USA and the SRA is that they did not engage with the Black Lives Matter protests. You know, they didn't set up shop in the middle of these protests to set up an organization, you know, set up supplies for these protesters, protect these protesters with first aid supplies. You know, like it was a big moment for politics in the US, period. You know, that many people protesting. That's like when we had Shahid Bifar on, he was saying occupying public spaces and how important that is for building class consciousness and recruiting people who otherwise would not be in on this because so much of it is opt in. Like Mm -hmm. people aren't hearing any kind of message from any of these Vanguard or any of these socialist groups if they haven't gone to the meetings, if they haven't signed up for the group, if they're not following the right pages, if they're not listening to the right people or whatever. You know what I mean? Like occupying public spaces is the thing. Like the SRA could be so big right now if they just set up camp at every single Black Lives Matter protest from this year. Yeah, but then they also would get crushed. Like as soon as yes. they, it's like that's the the tough place that they're in. It's like as soon as they actually do anything that would be super effective, that's illegal. As soon as you actually do something that works, like the CIA is coming down on you hard. If not the CIA, just the police themselves. All right, so I wrote an answer for this one. Somebody asks, how would an ideal Marxist state in the U.S. function alongside Black or Indigenous autonomy? Oof. So I answered. Ideally, the struggles of identity politics would be done away with in the same way as class struggle, as in when working people have control of production, institutions of the state, economic wealth, etc., then this would apply to all marginalized people who have traditionally been working class since they've been mostly prevented from reaching the upper echelons of class society in capitalism. And obviously, with the new adaptations of capitalism, for example, neoliberalism with its inclusion of women and people of color, LGBTQ people in the positions of oppressors, this makes it harder to spread that class consciousness. And that's where you get like the girl bosses who are doing drone strikes and everything. And it also leads to misleading ideas about capitalism bringing freedom to people through wealth. And this is something that I've heard from libertarians and caps and even what we would call brochialists who reduce everything to monetary inequality and just the lowest level of class struggle. Without that's the first time I've heard that. That was really you good. Heard of <laughs> no, that oh, was, yeah. yeah, that's <laughs> such a good term. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, I was definitely a brochless myself when I was going from being a cringy 25-year-old libertarian to finally finding leftism and, and still not understanding all the principles of identity politics and why it's important. But one of the things that I never said this myself because I hadn't heard it until later on, but I've heard people say since then, 
how badly can you be hurt by racism or homophobia or whatever type of bigotry if you have $100,000 in your bank account? And that's essentially how they reduce all of it to class struggle. And they will act like if you just get enough wealth in capitalism and you are lifted up out of poverty or whatever like economic strife you're in, then you're not really going to be affected by any of the identity struggles. And in that way, they're kind of right. But it's such a dishonest take at worst, but ignorant at best, because it's a perfect example of a fake argument from capitalists because it hints at the idea that the problem obviously is class struggle, but it also assumes that everyone has a potential to overcome this class oppression and that identity struggles aren't really important. And in this case, especially when it comes to libertarians and ANCAPs, that the only barrier to these is government regulation. And that's literally what it will come down to if you have this conversation with a libertarian style person or an ANCAP. They will act like the only reason that anybody of any particular identity, the only reason that they are not in a good position class-wise is because of some kind of government law that's holding them down. And they only mean like as far as when it applies to businesses. They act like if you just stopped having taxes and regulations on businesses, then those people could open up businesses for themselves and become wealthy, and they would be the black or indigenous person of color with $100,000 in the bank account because they'd be able to build up their business, you know, scratch. I see where they're coming from, but they're just not taking into account any of the actual pressures that exist in society and any identity struggles that come into it. And that's why I say it's such a good capitalist piece of rhetoric, because you could be a wealthy person and say, oh, well, I know X or Y person that is like a person of color or is LGBT or whatever. And you could say, well, they made it. So can everybody else. When in reality, they can't, because that's not how capitalism fucking works. Like everyone cannot make it. There has to be the oppressed underclass. And most of the time, those people are marginalized people, people of color, women, minorities of any kind. What would you have word get? Yeah, no, like you're saying. Um, capitalism requires an underclass and it's clearly one of the flaws in pro-capitalist arguments where they're like oh yeah they can remove all the taxes and regulations these small businesses can be able to thrive but at the same time they'll be like well yeah amazon just has a better business model (laughs) you know it's not an account that they do all this fucking lobbying and they have way more fucking infrastructure and capital to invest. And subsidies. Some, it's in fucking Joe Schmo who wants to fucking start a fucking garage down the street. You know what I mean? They want to argue both sides, but it clearly shows the inherent hypocrisy with those pro-capitalist arguments. Like I said earlier, fuck class reductionism. All my homies hate class reductionism. Jaren, did you have a take on this question? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to kind of turn it on its head a little bit just, just to illustrate complexity, and that's, that's all. Basically, in the Soviet Union, you know, they, they more or less got rid of the Christian orthodoxy, right? And I'm not religious at all. In fact, I kind of hate religion, but there's a really interesting case study to be done with the fallout from that. So Russia had a lot of pockets of anti-Semitism historically, and when the, the Soviets took over, they kind of took the Orthodox Church out of the knees. Can't say I blame them because the Orthodox Church and the Tsars were assholes to everybody. (laughs) But they let the Jews in Russia keep their religion because Judaism was not just a religion, but it was also an ethnicity, right? So this caused all of these people who lost their Orthodox Christianity to look at the Jews and say, well, why the fuck did you get to keep your religion? Why didn't I get to keep mine? Ignoring the ethnic component, ignoring the historical context and all that, because to them, it was their God. It was their, their heritage. It was their culture. And it actually stirred up a lot more anti-Semitism in Russia and the USSR, even though the Soviet government was trying to do the right thing. 
by not applying that rule equally across the board, it actually made it really tough for Jews because now these anti-Semitic pockets were growing in size because of the disenfranchised Orthodox Christians. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about like identity politics under capitalism or communism or anything else, it's so hard to get a singular take on it because this shit is so complicated. Generational trauma takes so long to work out. And like, I even saw an article the other day from Prager U, of course. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Brace yourself. Explaining why socialism doesn't work and using a native reservation as an example. My God. I shit you not. What was, um, what was the basis of that argument? How'd that work? That native reservations uh, get this federal funding and they're supposed to allocate it equally to the people on the res and they just don't, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, ignoring food deserts and ignoring austerity and ignoring the blatant corruption of the Department of Indian Affairs in Washington. Mm-hmm. And of course, then, they should be getting more money <laughs> instead of figuring out like how they're dividing the money. Or like ignoring the fact that we just sort of put them on plots of land that are right? as far removed and horrible as possible. You know, Cherokee's down the road from me and it's in the floodplain. But I digress. My, my point is, is like if we're talking about indigenous culture and black culture, looking at these, these leftist ideals, to me, it's important to like have the information out there, have the discussion out there. But like the last thing that I want to do personally is be another white person telling someone of color what they should think. Because it just would make me feel like shit, and I don't think it's the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I know that when that was done for me and my people, I guess if you would call it, you know, my Lithuanian ancestors or whatever, it didn't go so fucking hot. I'm not giving a great answer, but it's just so damn complicated. Well, no, I mean, you actually are getting, it, it's a good point, and I think you bring up actually a really relevant point with the Prager U bullshit, because it's another example of, like I was saying with the wealthy person of color, or LGBT person who, you know, has overcome oppression because they got some money in their bank account. It's like, it's a good <laughs> capitalist argument because it works for both the uneducated guys at the bottom who don't understand enough to know why it's bullshit and they can repeat it and think that they are right. And it works really well for the wealthy guys at the top who are smart enough to understand why it's bullshit, but they're doing it cynically and dishonest. Right. And so just like every capitalist argument, it works on both those levels and it works to serve the interests of power. My short answer at the end of all this, you know, apart from my long-winded rant about it, was that in an ideal world, it wouldn't be an issue because freeing people from class struggle would make them equal and give them equal ability to address issues that they have and equal control over the institutions and everything, like actual equality. And since the question originally was framed, how would an ideal Marxist state in the U.S. function alongside black indigenous autonomy? But in the real world, because capitalism has so efficiently adapted and co-opted identity struggles, and we have now these you know, girl boss, trans drone pilots sniping people in Syria or whatever they're doing. Because of that, you now have to adapt our school of thought. You have to adapt Marxism. And now we have to take on identity struggles as well as class struggle. And that's also my answer to when people like to bring up historical events and they say, oh, how can you be a tanky and like, you know, you fucking Stalinist, you must want to kill gay people and Jews. And it's like, no, bitch, I don't want to do anything that they did wrong in the past. We want to avoid that. That's a mistake to be learned from. First of all, it wasn't that bad. Whatever you're saying about Stalin, he wasn't that bad. We'll get to that later in another episode. But even if he did something bad, that's not something we're going to do again. That's just a mistake that you learn from. That's all. Did I bring it up already tonight that um, the other night my wife put on this documentary about like Stalin and like, oh, the no. Soviet Union? No, no, please show me, please. Dude, it was, well, <laughs> Dude, is your wife doing what my wife's doing? I can only imagine, no. 
Oh, well, I told you like uh, last episode beforehand, my wife, she's been playing like documentaries about the USSR, but from a liberal perspective, mm-hmm. just to make me very upset. And so I just <laughs> yell for like an hour and a half. Well, I, I don't know how do many that. times I make her stop and pause the video. I'm like, no, 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 no. Listen. <laughs> Well, no, so she did She did do that. Like, she put on a very capitalist, uh, obviously, like, fascist-friendly documentary about the USSR, and she put it on thinking, like, because I like historical stuff, and she likes historical stuff, so we were like, oh, we'll, we'll both like this. Like, it's commie. You'll like it, right, baby? I'm like, yeah, put it on. Oof. So I'm, like, dicking around on my phone. I'm, like, half-falling asleep and, like, barely paying attention. And so she had had a couple of drinks because she was hanging out with her girlfriends. Like, they had, like, a book club. And so she's, like, watching this, and she's, like, in tears because they're talking about how they would, like, they found like some 12 year old girl at like a train station. She didn't have her paper. So they just sent her off to the camps and like story after story of like the Soviet soldiers would just like, or the police or whatever, the NKVD, whoever they were at the time, they just are coming across children who just don't have their papers on them or just don't have any documentation or just aren't in the right place at the right time. And they just send them off to the camps. I'm like, are you serious? Like, first of all, I'm a little suspect that that even happened. But second of all, even if that were the case, like, let's just assume the absolute worst and all these stories are absolutely true. That's still not something that we want to repeat. And even if that did happen, the U.S. has done and is doing far worse right now. So before we start trashing the guy who wasn't keeping good enough track of his low level police while he was beating the fucking Nazis, let's just look at it with a little bit of a critical lens here. And let's just like take it with a grain of salt is all I'm saying. But at the, at the time, I was like half asleep. So I was just like, oh, they were probably fascist. Fuck them. Send them to the <laughs> and then because I was like not paying attention. So the meme might came out. But I mean, that's that's a distinction right there. Like that is memeing online is one thing when you just say Stalin did nothing wrong because you just want to like wrap it up and get through the discussion, and just troll people. But then the actual nuanced take is that you can't really trust the capitalist or reactionary account of what happened in these historical events. And even if you do trust that, that doesn't mean that it's something that you want to repeat and emulate going forward in the future. It's not something that you take on wholeheartedly as Marxist doctrine, because none of that stuff, like nowhere did Marx or Stalin even write, oh, we got to send all the little kids to the camps if they don't have their papers. Like there were definitely abuses of power in the Soviet Union. That's not something that we got to do every time we do Marxism. Go ahead, Ward. Sorry. Yeah, no, like, so in response to Jaren's like USSR and religion thing, first point is Jewish spatial lasers. Like, of course, <laughs> the Jews got to keep their religion. Like, you have the Death Star of David. You're going to keep your religion. <laughs> uh, you're and right. my second point on religion is that religion is just fucked, period. And my source for that is a medical study that was done on the results of people who were prayed for and not prayed for in surgery. Uh-huh. If you pray for somebody they are fucked really yeah statistically it is better if you don't fucking pray for them hail satan exactly (laughs) but those are my two points i was struggling to hold on to sorry buddy all right so the last two questions that we have here actually sorry the last three so the last one that i even wrote anything for because i actually wanted to get jaren's take on this as well um, just off the top of your head, I think you'll be able to answer it better than me. But somebody asked, what's a good intro to theory? Actually, two people asked it. So what is a good intro to theory? And my answer for this was just podcasts, because that's been my window into theory. Red Menace, especially. 
but as like supplements, like that's what I would recommend anybody who wants to get into theory, read the primary sources, like read Lennon, read Marx, read Engels, like read whoever you want to read, but then also find the YouTube videos where people break it down and, you know, make it easier to digest, listen to podcasts, like watch bread tube videos about it. But then also you can just get into other like leftist forms of media. Like there is a whole subset of YouTube called bread tube and it's like philosophy tube. I know Hakeem, uh, Finball or Finnish Bolshevik. And even like there's that guy on Instagram, I don't know if you guys have seen Midwestern Marks, and I think he goes by his name, Eddie Ligersmith or Ligersmith, but he's got some like fantastic videos where he breaks down some of these concepts like really well and very quickly and simply. And then I would also just recommend people read Michael Parenti, of course. And I have a feeling, Jaron, I wrote these down, but I have a feeling you would agree, David Harvey and David Graeber. And Absolutely. I was also going to suggest Richard Wolf. He's great. And his wife has a couple of good podcasts, Harriet Fraud. Her podcasts are uh, Capitalism Hits Home, and It's Not Just in Your Head. Those are both really good ones as well. But I did want to get your take on that. What would you say are some good intros to theory, Jaron? I mean, my first answer will be, I'm, I'm going to stand David Graeber again, but this was actually the first book that I read that really hit home with me. And it's not about even leftist theory. It's called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you pick it up, it's, it's a thick book. So you're going to be like, oh, shit, this is going to be really intense. It's really not. But it's, it's just about debt through the ages, liquidity, exchange, the purpose of money, and, of course, how debt has structured and destroyed societies. So it's not even pertaining to leftist values per se, mm-hmm. but it makes you start thinking about exchange and like money hoarding and labor in a different way. Yeah. And that was like before I was, I was a leftist. I was reading this and I was like, this shit makes sense. And it gradually kind of eased me into more dense literature. Like there's no way I could have read anything by Marx without reading this first. And it really helped me. The other thing that I'll say is probably less popular, but I'm a big fan of reading things that I don't agree with. Mm. Um, You know, I think wealth of nations is a really important book. I think it's something that everyone should read because even if you don't agree with like liberal free markets, the guy that basically wrote the book for them is still saying, fuck landlords. We need to know that, (laughs) you know, because we've deviated so far, even from just classical liberalism or the social contract by Rousseau is another good one. There's tons of just classics about debt, human nature, markets, things like that, that are not necessarily marks, you know, that's good. No, actually, you remind me, I have a thing saved in my notepad on my phone. I'll put it in the discord for anybody who wants it when they hear this. It's all Adam Smith quotes taken from his books that sound mm-hmm. like they could be from Marx that sound yes. like, like talking about the exploitative nature of employers and landlords and people like the rentier class and everything. They're really good. Yeah. And then you look at like how people defend liberal markets today and it's just wild because they aren't even referencing like the guy. Yeah. They came up with them. It's so far removed. And, you know, that's my big takeaway when I read things like that. Like, I've even read shit by Ludwig von Mises, and I fucking hate that guy. Mm -hmm. He's a piece of shit. Like, Austrian Mm -hmm. economics are the worst. Just curse take. And then you read something like In the Fed by Ron Paul, and he'll bring up something like fractional reserve banking, and you're like, well, that's fucked. And then he'll talk about how Ludwig von Mises has the answer, and you're like, shit, I hate you so much. (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah. All right, so we got about 20 minutes left till nine. I mean, not that we really have any kind of time frame, but I would like I have to... no time limit, and my teeth are purple from my <laughs> So we can answer how are all of you guys radicalized, and we can talk a little bit about our radicalization processes. And then also the one about are we doomed to repeat certain cycles 
for the eternity of humanity, which I thought was a, a fun one. Do you guys have any affinity for either of those? I can ramble through how I got to no, leftism. No, I can't no, no. honestly <laughs> tell you off the top. Um, all right, so let's we'll do that one first, and then we'll see if we want to do the uh, cycles of humanity and talk about the Kali Yuga or some shit. But um, oh my God. so how are all of you guys radicalized? And I'll just say for me, my journey into politics, I think I always felt radical because I've just always kind of had this impression that things are not working for most of the people because I am, I come from a working class background. Everyone I know is working class and everyone I know my entire life has always been struggling to some degree. Like everybody that I know has been okay, but it could always be better. And it always seems like everybody's on the edge of potential ruin if something goes wrong. And luckily everyone I know and love has been very lucky and it hasn't happened, but it just seems like it's not working for most people. And so through that, I found libertarianism. When I was like 20, I found this book, this online book called For an Emergent Governance by this dude called Ryan Falk. And it's like hardcore and cap stuff. It's like, it's compelling and it's interesting to read, but like it's utter bullshit. And it just talks about how it would actually work if there were no government at all and why you don't actually need a government. And for me, that was pretty radical at the time. And I definitely said some really cringy libertarian shit. And I thought Ron Paul was a really cool guy when he was running around that time. And uh, yeah, but I still didn't vote because I was too radical for that. I was like, nah, voting is a bunch of bullshit. If it did anything, they would make it illegal. That kind of bullshit. Again, I was young and I was fucking dumb. And then Obama got elected and I was really into Obama. I thought he was really going to change things. I was really bought into the hope and change like rhetoric that he had going on. And I really had a lot of hope for him. And then just seeing him just not do anything that he promised for eight fucking years, man, just not get anything done. Even when he had the opportunity, even when he had like all three branches of government and he could have absolutely done some really cool stuff for this country that really fucked me up. Like I really just turned radical left and I didn't even know what that was at the time. Like I just knew that Obama wasn't liberal enough. That was the only words I even had to describe it. I didn't even know that like leftism was a thing. If you would ask me at the time, I probably would have said communism was just as bad as fascism. I probably would have said some really cringy stuff that we make fun of now. But, uh, yeah, then I just kept finding more and more leftist spaces and leftist ideas, and I just kept being amenable to them. And I kept talking to more leftists and finding that they had a lot of really reasonable things to say, even when I was in my more like brocheless kind of stage. And I thought that identity politics were like a big distraction that was like foisted upon us by the government to prevent real radicals from getting anything done because it would keep them infighting about like, oh, are we inclusive enough to the X person or X group or whatever? And I think there probably still is some validity to that. I think there that is still used. Like I have seen evidence to support the idea that like agents actually do infiltrate organizations and purposely stifle the conversation with like ever more inclusive rhetoric to make sure that like no action gets done. But I don't think that that means that you should reject identity politics or reject identity struggle entirely and just only, you know, reduce it all to class because that doesn't get anywhere either. So based. Yeah, it was, a, it was just a long, hard road finding more and more leftist spaces and podcasts and YouTube channels and things like that and Discord servers even to talk to people and like ask all the questions like, what about this historical event that everybody tells me like I shouldn't support X or Y socialist leader or country because of? And they explain it and it makes a lot of sense. And then I read the documents that they supply. And usually the pattern that you see is that the Western narrative of all these socialist countries existing or previous has always been exaggerated to make them sound way worse than they actually were. And then again, even if the absolute worst things are true, it is something that should be learned from and not emulated going forward. And none of it is endemic or inherent to Marxism itself. It's just human error. 
And it's the fact that, you know, we are people and all these structures and communist countries and everything are still comprised of humans who make mistakes and are susceptible to corruption when they are handed power. And so you just have to deal with that and try to do the best you can going forward. So that's, I guess, the long-winded answer to say my path of radicalization. But um, either one of you guys can go. Yeah, no, uh, I see a lot of similarities in yours as it was mine, like apolitical to oh libertarian. Yeah, that sounds good. And then realizing systemic issues and material conditions and then eventually oh shit marx is dope as a motherfucker man like <laughs> and then yeah as soon as i found marx i was i don't know i was pretty libertarian socialist you know like i was pretty anti-authoritarian then read state and revolution i was like oh shit <laughs> that's how that shit works yeah okay let's do that and yeah i've been tanky ever since I will say the stain on my voting record is voting for um, Vermin Supreme in 2012. <laughs> it was, I thought he was, I was apolitical at the time. I thought he was hilarious dumping glitter on that one dude, you know, true the free pony platform sounded hilarious. That's like my big voting record stain. What's not like? Occupy. Occupy is probably the only thing I forgot to mention that was like a big thing that influenced me politically. I think that probably did it for a lot of people, you know, people around our age or younger. Go ahead, Jaron, your turn. I mean, I think it's, it's, there's a similar theme is like everybody kind of like goes through similar stages of, you know, radicalization. Cause I, you know, I looked into libertarianism, thought I was that for a while. Then I just didn't think there was a place for me and I wound up on anarchism, but I think it started like, real young for me because I, I was kicked out of three different schools or asked politely to leave or whatever. And it's never because I was a bad kid, but I would do things like I would just skip class and go get stoned and like read a book. And, you know, I wanted to put myself through school. I wouldn't skip to like go fuck around and deface property or anything. I just, I wanted to get high and go read and I would keep getting in trouble. So I was kicked out of three different schools and that made me just kind of distrust authority. And eventually I found, you know, some resources. Uh, it's empirical to everyone here at this point. I grew up conservative Jewish and I found some resources about Wall Street funding the Nazis. And I read a book about that. I'd say I was probably 20 years old, maybe 21. And at that point, that was probably one of the more painful things I've had to read because it, it really shows that like, you know, even Zyklon B, the gas that they used, was made by IG Farben, which was financed by the country I'm living in. So, you know, the whole thing comes crashing down. And then I start looking at, you know, the profiteering that came after 9-11, which whatever you happen to believe about that, the truth is, Western powers made a lot of money. And of course, the George Bush war crimes and stuff like that. So I was pretty disenchanted with the US in my early 20s. And I just didn't know what to do with it. And I did believe all the, uh, you know, bad takes on leftism, you know, oh, the Soviet Union killed as many people as the Nazis and all that shit. But yeah, it really takes a lot to get through that. And then to find these other things that are hidden in plain sight, like Marx and like anarchist literature, abolition, and, you know, vanguardism, all these things. But even though I discovered fuck the U.S. 12 years ago now, it has taken me this long to even get where I'm at. And I'm probably still wrong about a bunch of shit, <laughs> you know? But I mean, I feel like 
we all can admit that. Like there definitely are things that I still have wrong and I can only imagine what my beliefs are going to be in another four, six, 10 years or whatever. But because we don't think that we are the be all and end all that we know everything about politics, like I feel like that's what differentiates us from the pig heads on the right who just think that like the same shit that they learned in the fourth grade is the same shit that applies now. And yeah. it's just so such a simplistic and just pig-headed worldview. And it drives me nuts that people still subscribe to it, but whatever. Yeah, no, it, it's always a journey. That's all human life is, is a journey. You know, you're going to learn more as you progress. Like, I have been standing AOC, and I even recently posted a thing where it's like, yeah, this is going to be the year where AOC says tanky. <laughs> That'd be great. I would love it if she did. Dude, I mean, if you scroll like, back to the beginning of me memeing online on the Turn Leftist Instagram page, like, I was definitely an ANCOM, like, two, three years ago, whenever I started it. Like, I was definitely identifying as an anarcho-communist because I thought China bad, USSR mostly bad, you know, fascism with red flags or whatever. And mm-hmm. then just the more I talk to people and the more I read about things, and that's what I would suggest to anybody. It's like, don't even, like, again, don't take my word for it. Don't take our words for anything. Just go read everything. Go read both sides and then decide for yourself because eventually you will arrive at what makes the most sense to you. If you just read both sides of every issue, every historical event that you're questioning, every like aspect of whatever political theory that you're getting into, read all of it. And then just like talk to different people, see what their takes on it. Talk to the tankies, talk to the incoms and see who seems the most knowledgeable about this. You know, pick their brains about it and just decide for yourself. That's all you can really do. All we got to do is unite under the flag of anti-capitalism. Basically. That's the biggest thing. Like we will infight. All fucking day long <laughs> as leftists. Yeah. You know, but at the end of the day, we need the unity. Oh, uh, I think we'll place to wrap it up. So yeah, I, I was just going to say the, the only other thing I can really think of in so far as like becoming radicalized or whatever is I can only speak on my own behalf here, but like my identity politics are part of why I became what I am now. Like it's a really big part of it. Because it wasn't just the book that influenced me that I was referring to, you know, about the Nazis and shit. But it's also, I just found it so ironic that throughout my youth, I was told that we, you know, I went to Holocaust classes every week, every week, Hmm. and learned about the Shoah. Not once did they tell us why the Germans became radicalized against Jews, Mm -hmm. which had to do with Treaty of Versailles, debt, peonage, that sort of thing. They just like economy. Yeah, they basically just had us thinking like, yeah, they woke up and fucking snapped. (coughs) The whole country. All of a sudden. Yeah, like I never learned about that. And then I also never learned about like, not just the the Palestinian plight in Israel and how that does mirror pretty much just straight up fascist politics, but also the fact that Israel used to have huge leftist and communist and anarchist organizations. The whole state in 48 almost went communist. But it was put down by things that are still around, like the ADL and uh, fucking APAC. You know, so my, my own knowledge about my identity politics helped radicalize me because it spoke to me so clearly against what I had been taught when I was a kid and just shattered it. And then everything else started coming out from there. We'll have to ask uh, Sterling and Cosper for their takes when they, uh, they join us in the next Q&A part three or whatever. Yeah. So that's a good place to wrap it up there. We can address the... Uh, Oh, are we doomed to repeat certain cycles for the eternity of humanity? That's I, I, someone that I want to spend a little time on. We'll talk about that. Uh, <laughs> I need to be stoned for that one. Not that one. <laughs> no, well, no, we can do that another time. <laughs> All right. So there. Let's do some plugs. Jaron, why don't you plug your website? So it's Jaron Perlman, J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N.com. 
you can purchase either one of my books there. And currently, all proceeds are going to Beloved Asheville, which is helping the local homeless. They're about to displace another camp next week. So um, we're doing that whole shtick again. Um, Ward, go ahead and plug your Instagram. Yeah, I got two. At Ward Lawley, W-A-R-D-L-A-W-L-E-Y. And at Millennial Leftist, common spelling. Cool. cool. And since uh, Sterling is not here, I'll plug the Twitter. That's Twitter slash TurnLeftistPod. Check out his uh, funny tweets. He's got some really good takes. And uh, Cosper. Their Twitch is twitch.tv slash C-O-S-P-E-R underscore. What's up, Ward? Sorry. Yeah, no, I'd say also plug our Discord. If you guys are listening and you have any more questions about stuff like this and want to, them to be added to the next Q&A episode, hit us up in the Discord. Yeah, good thinking. Yeah, we still have that, um, that channel up for people who want to ask questions for us to do on future Q&A episodes. I like these episodes. Yeah, these are fun. Yeah, I have fun with this too. It's definitely more laid back and uh, don't have to do a lot of research. Oh, I'll also plug, let me just plug the SRA real quick again. That's socialistra.org. I have uh, forgotten to plug them the last couple episodes. And then uh, again, our Patreon, that's Patreon slash Turn Leftist. I think we are have decided to start doing some Patreon content. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and subscribe. We should start putting out a second episode every week. I want to say in the next two to three weeks, we should have that rolling out. And then for everything else, yeah, just check out the link tree. That's linktree slash turn leftist. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Thanks, everyone. Uh, you know, recommend this podcast to other people. If you think they would like it, give us a hand. And uh, yeah, come hang out with us in the Discord. Thanks, everyone. See you guys. See you next week. Later. See you.